Welcome to another episode of Political Climate. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Canary Media, a non-profit newsroom covering the transition away from fossil fuels and towards the clean, equitable energy systems of the future. If you've ever wondered about how we will decarbonize transportation, how we'll keep grids reliably running on renewables and batteries, or which are the policies enabling or preventing these changes, go over to canarymedia.com, where our team of journalists answer those very questions and many more. That is canarymedia.com. You can also subscribe to our daily newsletter to get our stories directly in your inbox. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. If you missed our last episode, be sure to check it out after this. We interviewed climate champion Senator Martin Heinrich, and it's a conversation you don't want to miss. But for now, let's jump right in because we have a lot of ground to cover. We love seeing so much climate action, but it's at a point where it's truly hard to keep up. So here is the rundown. We thought we'd be recording this after the House voted on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that we've all been waiting on. That vote was initially scheduled for September 27th, but it was announced last weekend that the vote would be postponed until Thursday, September 30th. So if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, stay tuned for the results of that infrastructure vote coming in today. That is if the vote happens at all. As we record, Democrats are divided on how to move forward, with progressive members in the House keeping their commitment that they would not vote for the infrastructure bill, the one the Senate passed on a bipartisan basis last month, until a far more expansive $3.5 trillion budget reconciliation package, the Democrats' big economic package, also cleared the House. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had tied the fate of the infrastructure and reconciliation bills together, pushing to have both of them advance before the end of September. However, she shifted strategies this week in essentially decoupling the two big pieces of legislation and moving forward with the scheduled vote on the bipartisan infrastructure deal alone on the 30th. Now, whether or not the infrastructure package actually passes in the House and heads to President Biden's desk remains to be seen. There is so much in flux right now that it's really hard to say how all these moving pieces will fit together. Congress will have to act on something soon, however. Lawmakers have to pass a funding plan before the end of the month in order to avoid a government shutdown, what would become the third government shutdown in the past three years. Then, just for fun, Congress is also gridlocked on how to raise the debt limit, with the nation's borrowing authority set to expire around mid-October, which would have huge implications. So that is all a huge mouthful. Suffice to say, there are big tectonic plates that are shifting. And Shane, you are our resident Capitol Hill expert. What do you make of what's happening now and how all these pieces are moving? Yeah, I think it's pretty wild. We told our listeners uh, a couple weeks ago that these dates weren't entirely arbitrary. So reconciliation is a little arbitrary because they have until September 30th of next calendar year in order to use the instructions that were passed in the budget resolution. So set that one aside for a little bit. The um, bipartisan infrastructure bill, while it has some novel provisions, some provisions that are not at all tied to surface transportation reauthorization, it also does encompass surface transportation reauthorization. So the current transportation authorization expires September 30th. As Julia mentioned, so does government funding. 
And then there's a debt limit, which doesn't have a specific date tied to it. But I think we heard from the Fed today that October 18th is the target date. So when you start to look at how these different pieces are moving, things need to happen this week, no matter what. And the things that need to happen are we need to either extend our surface transportation bill or pass the bipartisan infrastructure plan. And we need to either pass appropriations bills, which, of course, is not going to happen. We're not going to pass 12 or a continuing resolution. So as it seems right now, Democrats are on track to pass a continuing resolution that would keep the government open until December 3rd. That doesn't really change anything for people. It doesn't change outcomes. It doesn't change funding levels, but it at least stops the government from shutting down. Shane, will the Republicans support that? You know, I think they will uh, in the Senate. I think in the House, it'll be a little more interesting because they'll make sure it passes, but you don't need any Republicans to pass something in the House. But in the Senate, um, well, actually in the House too, honestly, they have every incentive to support it. Basically, these laws were written when Republicans had complete control of government. So what a CR does is instead of allowing Democrats to identify some of their spending priorities and you know increase funding levels in certain areas, decrease funding ones, this just locks into current law what Republicans wrote when they were in power. So if they, you know, any opposition there is total game playing, but they have no reason to oppose a CR that just extends current law. And that just keeps the government open, essentially, correct? Yeah, it just makes sure that the government doesn't have to seize operations. It doesn't fund any of these new programs we've been talking about. It doesn't extend any authorizations. It just allows the government not to close at midnight on September 30th. So then can Democrats continue working on the budget reconciliation, the big $3.5 trillion economic plan while that happens? Does the CR in any way prevent them from working on that or just get these major milestones passed and then you can go back to doing the $3.5 trillion deal, putting the politics aside for a second, thinking more about the process. Well, I was going to say, it depends on who you ask. Yeah, technically speaking, of course you can do that. You can pass the service transportation extension or the bipartisan bill. You can pass a CR. You don't need to deal with the debt limit this week, though I think you know most sound-minded people think we should deal with it pretty soon. None of that technically interferes in any way, shape, or form with reconciliation. So the real issue is, progressives are concerned that if you pass those must pass items without reconciliation, then they're not going to have, you know, the 50 votes they need in the Senate and the 218 they need in the House to get some of those priorities that, you know, Brandon can speak to this better than I can, but that many progressives think are far more important than some of the other legislation in front of them right now. So the calculus here is that one way or the other, Democrats are going to have to rally um, and come up with some plan forward for a keeping the government open with a budget, with a CR, continuing resolution, and in theory, pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, I think that would be the ideal for a, a Biden, say. But the question mark there is, will progressives go along with that now that their reconciliation wants are decoupled and will be addressed later? Is that what we're looking at? Yeah, I'm not sure, despite what has been happening today. By the way, it's very scary to record this episode because by the time you all hear this, everything could have changed. <laughs> this is literally changing by the hour. Uh, so we're in a tough spot here on the podcast. Um, but I think despite what, you know, the latest news with Speaker Pelosi, the, the progressives seem to be standing strong in the House. I don't think that they're going to pass the bipartisan bill and there seems to be dozens of them that are willing to stand firm unless they feel confident that reconciliation is going to move forward. Now, they don't have to pass the reconciliation bill this week, but they got to feel like they have a top line number and some general framework and some timeline that gives them confidence. And so I think where this needs to land is you know, agree on the top line number. I think progressives know it's not going to be 3.5 trillion. They're not going to like stand firm on that. Get it as 
far above one and a half trillion as you can and make sure the climate stuff is in there and call it a day. <laughs> that's what that's that's the best option here. And I think the big concern there is that it seems as recently as today, Senators Cinema and Manchin in separate meetings told the president they don't want to have a discussion about that top line number until the House votes on BIF. Now, you know, both sides certainly think the other side is being stubborn, but I think their point is these are two separate bills. If you don't support the bill, don't vote for it. If you do support it, vote for it. And then let's discuss the other bill. I'm not taking either side here because I want to see many provisions in each of these packages get through. But I think they're intentionally withholding locking in a top line number. And I don't know if that's a winning strategy or not. But our listeners may know two days from now on Thursday uh, whether or not that strategy is a winning strategy. And you said BIF, I think that's the bipartisan infrastructure framework. Yeah, I guess the technical name is the um, Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So I should refer to it as that or IIJA. But it was called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework before it was written into legislative text and passed by the Senate. The Kristen Cinema thing hurts my brain. I don't understand what she's doing because her polling numbers amongst Democratic primary voters in Arizona are in really bad shape. Her approval rating with Democrats are far below what Joe Biden's numbers are. And in a recent poll this summer, 66% of Arizona Democratic voters said they would vote for a different candidate who would get rid of the filibuster. I don't understand her strategy. If she thinks she's going to get crossover votes from Republicans, first of all, she's got to make it out of a Democratic primary. Right now, those numbers are screaming primary me. And you know, if she does make it out, if she thinks she's going to get Republicans to cross over and vote for her, I think that's a pipe dream. We're not living in that world. There's very few people crossing over anymore. So, And when's she up for election? I think she's got a couple of years. I think she's up in, in 2024 because I, I wasn't tracking it incredibly closely, but there was a comment about that on Twitter and the person who made the comment got roasted also on Twitter. <laughs> I do think Senator Kelly is up sooner, correct? Because of um, he took a seat that was... He's up in this coming cycle. So in November of got next it. year. Uh, that's interesting thinking of the politics of it. I mean, 2024 is a bit of time, um, but certainly the midterms are on people's minds. And so that's where the two sides of the Democratic Party, I feel like we talked about this a lot in recent years and a lot of people pushed back on and saying, and you, Brandon, pushed back saying, look, there's not as much division among the Democrats as people keep saying there is, but we're kind of seeing that play out right now in very real terms with major pieces of infrastructure and not just infrastructure of legislation and policies and priorities on the table and this division seems to be pretty real and with pretty high stakes. I mean, 95% of the Democratic Party is aligned on the bipartisan deal and a reconciliation package somewhere between $1.5 and $3.5 trillion, right? It's really just getting a few of the Senate Democrats like Manchin and Cinema, and a few moderates in the House. You know, that's not that's not some like civil war within the party. It's generally aligned. And there's a few here that, you know, you need to get on board because the margins are so thin, you know, in the House and the Senate. Well, the only reason I say crisis is because it could blow back in the midterms in a real way that affects the party and, and creates other kinds of problems for it. So I hear you that the policies are largely aligned, although Again, if you follow the climate space or any other number of issues, that delta between 1.5 and 3.5 is pretty big. That means a lot of different kinds of policies being in or out. Yeah, I think, you know, the interesting thing about this is if you really want to zoom in, there's really only one question at issue. So we talk about the technical aspects of this, which are you have to, you know, keep the government running. You have to at some point deal with the debt limit at some point really soon. You have to extend surface transportation. Reconciliation has its own set of rules 
you know, that it goes by going through the what they call the bird rule, which limits what kind of provisions you can have in reconciliation. And we have a parliamentarian that decides that and now she's out for three weeks, correct? That, that's right. And so it's all hyper. I didn't know she was out. I heard that earlier. So I'll, I'll take your word for that. But it's all hyper complicated and it's all super technical. But for our listeners, there's really only one question at issue. And I don't think anyone knows the answer. And that question is, if the bipartisan infrastructure bill, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, if that bill is enacted into law this week, are there still the votes for reconciliation? I genuinely don't know the answer to that. And I don't think anyone does. But if someone knew the answer to that question, everything else would fall into place pretty quickly. And just so you put a finer point on the debt ceiling element of it, what happens if we don't do that? Like, that's kind of crazy to me that that's also folded into the discussion, given it has huge high stakes, right? It means like the U.S. doesn't pay its bills on time. Yeah, this is where it's another horrible name. It's not raising, you know, it's just paying, as you said, Julia, it's it's the debt that was incurred under Trump, right? So Republicans are basically saying, we don't want to pay the bills that we ran up when we had control of the government, which is a disservice. Uh, you know, it's it's malpractice for their, their obligation to this country, but it could have catastrophic effects on the global economy. So we're really, I went through this when I was in the Obama administration, this debt ceiling, and you're really like you're really playing a dangerous game. It's really terrible. And I think the strategy here from McConnell, Shane, you can can correct me if I'm wrong, is to get the Democrats to use the reconciliation tool just to get through the debt ceiling so that they can't use it on the broader policy agenda, right? You only have so many bullets to fire on reconciliation. And he's basically trying to get them to fire this bullet on debt ceiling and not use it for anything else. You can use them concurrently. I think so for each budget resolution, you get up to three reconciliation bills, but there are rules. You have spending, you have revenue, and you have debt limit. You can fold them all into one or you can use them separately. So for example, if they pass the reconciliation bill being considered now, they could still use reconciliation to raise the debt limit without suffering any future consequences of having you know additional shots at reconciliation. The tougher issue for Democrats is if you raise the debt limit through regular order. You can raise it for a date rather than a number. So you could say, we're going to set it in November 10th, 2022. And basically you're pointing out to Republicans, at some point, this is going to be on your lap again. And we want to make sure that you have to deal with the consequences of this. If you do it through reconciliation, you can only do it to a number because it's a budget tool. And I think what McConnell really wants is to make them own that number. I think that's what it really comes down to. Woo. Well, as you said, Brandon, so much is going to change between now recording this late on a Tuesday evening uh, and when this comes out first thing Thursday morning. Crazy how much is moving. I honestly wonder how the staff on the Hill gets it done. I mean, I guess a lot of the language is sort of baked in from previous hearings and and write-ups and introductions of, of bill text, but it's kind of insane how much is indeed happening. I don't know. Shane, do you have any insight on that? Just on a personal note of what it's like to be on the Hill at this kind of crunch time? A lot of the ideas are new, but the way that you would effectuate them are sort of existing. So if you look at legislation, and we went through this, uh, I lived through the government shutdown winter of 2012 or 2013 or 2014. I was at the budget committee, so I was deemed essential personnel. So when all other staff got home and the administration could keep it, some of its people uh, as well, but other people got home, we had to work with the Senate Democrats at the time because we controlled the House and they controlled the Senate to come up with some sort of plan to reopen the government and deal with all these things. The good news is if you've been around the Hill, like there isn't a ton of novel law writing. You have all the statutes that are in, you know, already in effect and you're really toggling them. 
So you can create like a new grant program. You can create a new tax credit. You can even, you know, increase tax numbers, but it's really more toggling than anything. So just from sort of an insider's perspective for our listeners benefit, what you would say is I have an idea. We could raise revenue by, I'll make this up, but we're going to increase royalty fees on usage of federal land. I don't have to know too much about that. I can go to the Congressional Research Service and say, here's what I want to do. Do you have any precedent for me on this? I can sort of take that over to the Congressional Budget Office and say, I want to raise royalties to 17.5%. They'll send me numbers. And then I go to the what's called the Office of Legislative Counsel. And I say, here's what I want to do. Here's the numbers. Can you write that bill for me? So staff has to be really crafty in how they interact with all these different offices and how they interact with each other. But it's not like they have to sit down with a pen and a stack of paper and, and try to sort this out from scratch. Although I do wonder to what extent, you know, exhaustion starts to weigh in a little bit in terms of keeping things and cutting things. And at some point, you got to take a big old knife to the proposals and just get it done, I would imagine. Well, Julia, that's why, you know, for our listeners, you should be engaging now. You should make your voice heard now. This is a critical moment. We talked a little bit about in the past what's in these bills, what's in reconciliation, the bipartisan deal for climate. I think that's been a problem in messaging to the general public. There's all this talk about the top line number, but the benefits that would come out of reconciliation and what's been proposed for our listeners for clean energy and climate are enormous. There is so much at stake right now. And what I've heard directly from the White House is they have been impressed with the engagement from the climate community. They feel like on the Build Back Better plan, the Hill is hearing from the climate community is is a lot of the advocacy. And that has helped where if they're going to be deciding what to cut, Julia, to your point, we want the clean energy and climate provisions to stay in. And we're making real progress on that because people are advocating. But there's going to be on Thursday, you know, when you're listening to this, there's a direct action day. You should go, our listeners, to Clean Energy for America or Climate Power or Evergreen Action. There's a number of different tremendous stakeholders here doing amazing advocacy work. Go and get plugged in and make sure your voice is heard because we really have the future of climate could be hanging on what happens in the next several days to weeks uh, on what happens here with, with the policy debate. Yeah. And sorry, I just want to clean up to, to one point of privilege. I did not in any way mean to imply that staff isn't working incredibly hard, Julia. Like you said, they're working incredibly hard. I just wanted our listeners to know that they don't have to sit there with a blank piece of paper and go, what do we do? <laughs> um, but there are people doing that. If you look at Senator Smith's office, who's been working towards this clean energy payment program, they really did create that from whole cloth. They thought about how do you turn you know, a clean energy standard into a budgetary tool. So I just wanted to make sure our audience knows I did not imply that. These staff are working hard. They're working late just that there are resources to help them manage these very, very difficult circumstances. Totally. I mean, I'm sure you know the hustle very well. And uh, you both, I know, are currently working hard right now. So am I. It's a crazy moment to, to see how policy really gets made, not just as a journalist, but now sort of being in the sector. And it's not just the top line items, of course, like the clean energy performance plan or payment program. It's down to smaller items like, you know, direct pay for residential solar, which is something that, you know, I care about. And there's just a lot that's still moving, a lot of details, and so much will even come out after all of this and implementation. So plenty more to talk about. We're really selling our show as a place to come and learn, given uh, half the things we said on the show today are like, well, we don't really know, we can't really know, and it might have changed by the time you listen to this. So I know it's really valuable content to all of you out there, <laughs> but hopefully, uh, you know, provides some insight on how things uh, are working. 
Brandon, do you have any final thoughts here uh, before we switch gears? Pelosi has said, right, she will never bring a vote to the floor that won't pass. And like, do we really believe that? Because like one, it seems like that's been her history, right? Like she's been faithful to that. But like one way of like this playing out is like, what if she did it like TARP where she's like, brings it to the floor, it fails, right? And then she's like, it causes like chaos, right? Just like TARP did. And then like all the Democrats would be like, oh my God, we're literally watching our approval ratings tank like the stock market. And then it just forces people to like come together and compromise. Is that is that a potential scenario? I've never like talked about that to anybody. So I have no idea if that's like insane, you know, or if that's like a different way that this could play out that nobody's thinking about. It could happen. For those who don't remember, the TARP program is the $700 billion troubled asset relief program that was designed to purchase toxic assets from banks back in 2008, I believe. Um, Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. I'm not sure if that would really help the Democrats, though, to put a vote on reconciliation specifically if they didn't have the votes lined up. Uh, I'm just not sure that that would cause the same kind of reaction that you know, the TARP program did at the time of the financial crisis. So I'm not sure the dynamics are the same. I'd like to make the point that like, you know, the problem is not that progressives are unwilling to compromise. The problem is that Manchin and Cinema have refused to say what they will support and what they won't. That's what everybody's hanging on. I really don't know what they believe, and I and and I really don't know what's true. Like those are two like unknowable. I, I believe that they would be willing to compromise. But the question is, what will Mansion and Cinema compromise on? Like right now, nobody knows what they will do, what they will support. Like they're they're not negotiating. They're not saying like like if Mansion came back and said, "I could do one point five trillion, and here's what here's what I would support in there." I think there'd be a conversation about that, like whether they would be like, okay, that's the best we can get. Well, you know, but it's not like the like the progressives are saying 3.5 trillion or nothing. They're saying, here's where we are. Where are you? And there's no answer to where are you? Like they don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody can get an answer out of mansion and cinema. So what will you do and not do? It's holding everything up. You know, we've seen this before where something has passed the house and then the Senate, it just goes nowhere. It's called Waxman Markey. The progressives, I think, are willing to compromise and get something done. The problem right now is not them. It's that Mansion and Cinema have been unwilling to say where they are. So as usual, the story on Capitol Hill is gridlock and, you know, slow moving and fast moving and bit of chaos all, all in one. Last week was Climate Week in New York, where the theme was all about getting it done. And it actually was kind of a nice break from, you know, some of the the negative coverage of climate to actually see leaders from all around the world come together and make new commitments across corporations and from the philanthropic world as well. So I want to talk about that for a minute in the second half of this show. One of the big announcements was from President Joe Biden, who told the U.N. General Assembly that he would work with Congress to double funds by 2024 to $11.4 billion per year to help developing nations deal with climate change. The funding would help achieve a global goal set more than a decade ago of $100 billion per year to support climate action in vulnerable countries by 2020. The European Union proposed directing an additional 4 billion euros annually to developing nations for climate finance through 2027. And in another big news item, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced at the UN General Assembly that China would stop leasing new coal-fired power plants abroad, following up similar commitments made earlier this year by Japan and South Korea. 
Now, this is a big deal. More than 70% of global coal-fired power plants currently in operation rely on Chinese funding. And China actually accounts for 55% of the world's pre-construction coal capacity. China's actually seen a 74% reduction in the scale of its project pipeline for coal, canceling nearly 500 gigawatts of new coal projects since signing onto the Paris Agreement. Not to mention China far outpaces the rest of the world in financing and deploying clean technologies like solar panels and lithium-ion batteries. So I want to pause there before getting into some of the other commitments. You know, we're talking about all this chaos on the Hill. Meanwhile, we have China stepping up and making some real commitments, noting, of course, it is still a big coal user. But these are some meaningful numbers and actions from that country. So, Shane, do you have any thoughts on that, what it means to have other nations stepping up while the U.S. is sort of figuring out what its climate path forward looks like? I mean, I think it's great, right? I mean, you want to see especially emerging, I guess it's hard to call China an emerging economy at this point, but, you know, to see other large emitters, I should say, and make commitments to, you know, change the way they do business. As I understand it, I think a lot of China's commitment was how they finance projects overseas. So I'd like to see them, you know, change their behavior uh, at home as well and, and see what kind of emissions reductions we can get there. But I think what's difficult, and a lot of countries experience this with the U.S., is that depending on you know how that country functions it's difficult to know whether or not you know those ambitions are going to be met so us leaders can make commitments but a lot of you know whether or not you meet those is based on the actions of congress i know every country has you know their own process but i've been disappointed in recent months reading about the commitments made in recent years and how you know no country that's a party to the paris agreement is on track to meet their commitments so i do think it's great that the ambition is there i do think it's great that countries are making tremendous commitments and I love to see that the momentum exists. But what I actually really care about is actual real emissions reductions in the near, medium and long term. And it's really difficult to sort of predict how positive these developments are unless and until we start to see those reductions as measured in real time. Brandon, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, this argument that Republicans often raise that we would be putting ourselves at an economic disadvantage if we enact aggressive climate policies this is another example of how that falls apart. We would be saving money, creating jobs, cleaning up uh, our air and water, and we're not putting ourselves at an economic disadvantage. Uh, China and other countries are moving forward. Before we move on to some other commitments made from corporations and the like, Shane, what are some other international climate commitments that the U.S. has? I know you worked a lot on the HFC hydrofluorocarbons you know, legislation that was actually advanced under President Trump and the Republicans. I understand there's more being done on that now, which all becomes part and parcel of what the U.S. will commit you know, at COP26 and our broader climate plan. Can you give us an update on that? Yeah, I mean, you might have seen that just last week, the Biden administration finalized the HFC regulations that were mandated by the Energy Act of 2020, which is you know really exciting. And one of the most interesting parts of that whole process was we constantly see you know corporations make pledges, whether it's part of Climate Week, whether it's part of you know some broader agenda, um, and that's great. But what we really love to see too is those pledges being followed up by action. And so, when advocating you know on behalf of, of the HFC legislation. The companies who you know manufacture these products and use these products were right there, hand in hand, on Capitol Hill, advocating for passage of this legislation. And we don't see that very often. You're starting to see a little bit of uh, of industry pushing for limits on methane, whether that's some sort of you know methane fee, whether that's capping methane leaks, all positive developments. And then you see large energy users like the Googles of the world making large clean energy commitments and they're doing the best they can to live up to those. So those are all really positive developments. What I think I'd like to see more of is some of the largest global emitters 
use you know their power and their advocacy networks to try to demand some of the change that they're calling for. You are seeing a lot of high emitting companies drive dollars into clean energy markets. That's exciting and that's a huge way to sort of achieve those objectives. But I'd love to see some of what we saw with the HFC legislation, which is companies who are responsible for making these products or refining these products or producing these products, you know, putting their money where their mouth is and advocating to both the U.S. government and other governments around the world to help implement some of these emissions reductions policies. So you're saying that's one example of where the private sector really got on board with a big climate action. That's the HFC rules, uh, reducing hydrofluorocarbons, but you're just not seeing that on the CO2 side and CO2 being a pollutant that lasts in the, in the atmosphere much longer, though not quite as potent as the HFCs. Well, yeah, we've seen corporations make commitments, but I guess, you know, to be more clear, when the HFC legislation was moving, those same corporations stepped up and they advocated hard to get those through. They talked to Republicans, they talked to Democrats, they made the business case, they made the climate case. They didn't just issue a press release. They actually went to bat for it. And that's why it got across the finish line. We've seen a lot of corporate commitments. I just haven't seen those same companies really going to bat to execute on policies that would allow the the country to meet those commitments. Brandon, do you have the same read? Yeah, we are seeing aggressive goals from corporates. Uh, they're taking this very you know seriously. Uh, the capital is flowing in this direction at a historic pace, which is really exciting. But I think to sh- what Shane's point is that are they putting like lobbying muscle, you know, behind that? And that's not totally clear. If you look at a company like Amazon, you have you're setting some amazing corporate sustainability goals. Uh, Jeff Bezos is putting his personal money behind this, you know, ten billion dollars on the you know Earth Fund and such. But you know, is Amazon hiring a bunch of lobbyists to go make sure that the reconciliation bill uh, gets passed? I don't know if that's the case. Interesting. Yeah, to your point, um, Jeff Bezos had pledged, I think, personally $1 billion for conservation to fight climate change during Climate Week NYC. We also saw that Bill Gates hit his $1 billion target for the Breakthrough Energy Catalyst. Uh, Eight other foundations pledged another $4 billion for what's known as the 30 times 30 initiative to protect at least 30% of the Earth's land and oceans by 2030. Amazon and Global Optimism added 86 new signatories to the Climate Pledge, which is where companies commit to reaching net zero emissions by 2040, which is 10 years ahead of the target set by the Paris Agreement. Um, So we are seeing money moving. Yeah. And Julia, Lorraine Powell-Jobs from the Emerson Collective pledged $3.5 billion last week as well. So, you know, I've been involved in climate advocacy for a long time and have been involved with, you know, I'm on the board of the Solutions Project. And this type of money was not flowing five years ago. It was very hard to raise philanthropic money for climate. It was a real challenge. So this this is exciting to see it. It's a real positive development. Yeah, and and to, to piggyback on that, um, a lot of a lot of philanthropic money is going into the space. I would I, I guess I thought we were talking more about actual corporations executing on their plans to be you know net negative carbon by you know state certain and i think there are certainly um, a lot in the space that have set clean energy goals and are doing everything they can to meet them i was intuitively thinking more about the fossil fuel industry and i probably should have been thinking in a more positive way about large energy consumers that are trying as hard as they can to decarbonize all of their you know scope one scope two scope three uh, emissions but I was more, you know, kind of tied into these recent discussions that are being had on carbon tax and other issues like that. And where where are the companies who really support a carbon tax? Are they for that? Are they against that? So I was certainly being too narrow minded and, and I'm encouraged what Brandon just raised a moment ago. And I can tell you, 
on fundraising, if you're an investment fund, they're getting a lot of questions from their investors about what is their, it's called ESG, environmental social governance, you know, policy. What are their metrics? How are they enforcing that? How are they holding themselves accountable? Those are conversations in the private sector that have really ramped up in the last few years. Um, and there's a lot more happening. The SEC right now is cons- contemplating a rule to mandate certain climate disclosures. And so that would have massive impact on the private sector. I guess what's exciting is there is action that we're seeing out there. And ultimately, it's just heartening to see that out of an event like Climate Week NYC, where the theme was getting it done, we saw some movement in that direction, which is hopeful at a time when there's still, it feels like a lot of gridlock on the policy front. The last thing I'll say on that, though, is part of Climate Week NYC was to have a bunch of late night hosts, I think eight of them in total, join forces and discuss the climate crisis on TV. Now, if you live on Earth, and I hope you do, then for years you've heard that the key fighting climate change is to reduce your carbon footprint. Reminds me of that famous parable. When you saw only one set of footprints on the beach, it was then that I picked you up in my Tesla. Greta Thunberg, welcome back to The Daily Show. Thank you so much. Last time I I spoke to you, you had just ridden like a, a catamaran across the ocean. What do you prefer? commuting on a catamaran across the ocean or just doing a Zoom? I mean, it's, it's nice to, to go on a catamaran, but it's also m- much more practical to do it over Zoom, to be honest. Of course, I, I've had my bad moments with Zoom and online classes, and it's, it gets a bit tiring sometimes sitting every day on Zoom, just watching your own face. It's not, it's not pleasant. You see, Greta, this is why I love having you on the show. You speak to my soul. (laughs) What's something that we can do, doctor, um, like tomorrow, to what we can do personally to make a difference and to help set us on the right track? There is one thing that everybody can do, and we're not doing it. What is that? Talk about it. Only 14% of us are actually talking about it. And if you don't talk, why would you care? And if you don't care, why would you ever do anything about it? So have a conversation, say you wouldn't believe it. I was listening to Jimmy last night. He said this, and he had these climate scientists on who said that we're effed, but we're not quite effed. We got some time and we gotta fix this thing. We can't let China beat us either. So even though our, wor- our breath creates carbon dioxide, we should talk about it. Amongst- Julia, why weren't we on Stephen Colbert? They didn't ask uh, political climate to come by and be a part of you know, their climate night? Shocking. I know, right? <laughs> I'll check my spam. I'm sure there was some sort of misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was funny about that is that there was some controversy over whether or not you know, this landed flat. And I saw some, you know, to the extent that Twitter chatter is interesting, uh, some Twitter chatter about this being kind of lame and not what the movement needs. They don't need spokespeople. They need real action. And I guess I wanted to put that to you all to close this out. I mean, what do you think of a comedian or a group of comedians engaging on climate in this way? Does it help us or does it distract? I'm curious to get your thoughts, Brandon. We need all the attention possible on climate. I mean, those uh, late night hosts... They have millions and millions of people watching their show uh, in the aggregate. So for them to all focus on climate for a night, I think that's a great thing. We need more people who don't pay attention to politics every day to become aware of what's happening with climate and to be more educated uh, about the issue. So that is a great development, I think. 
Well, I agree. I think it was kind of funny that people were sort of uh, disparaging it, given that we have asked for years for more attention to be on climate issues, more time on news channels, and then we get it. And sometimes uh, it feels like it's not enough, which is true, but it certainly helps raise awareness. And to your point, Brandon, now is crunch time. Now's the time when voices matter and awareness matters to actually get things done. So any amplification, I think, goes a long way. And we'll leave it there for this show for now. A lot to watch for, and we'll be back another two weeks with a deep dive on how things are shaking out. Thanks, everyone, so much for listening. I also want to thank Kyle, our editor, and Maria Virginia, our producer on this show. They make it possible. They're fantastic. Thank them so much. Also, thanks to Canary Media, who are producing this podcast in partnership with, and of course, the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. Thanks again for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back again in two weeks. Until soon. 